Hello everyone to this unique sort of Myth Pilgrim episode. Rather than reflecting on a classical mythic or fairy tale story from our culture today, I was inspired to explore how Christianity as a story shapes Western culture. This idea actually came from a blog post I was writing where I was summarizing the immense contribution Christianity has made to Western civilization, even aside from any personal faith in God. I've often argued to my non-believer friends that even if you struggle to have a relationship with God or believe in Him, Christianity as a mere worldview or philosophy still makes the most sense to live. Not only do I believe it is coherent and conducive to every aspect of human flourishing, it actually has formed Western society in a way we often don't appreciate anymore until you step out of Western society, or more likely today, once Western values suddenly come under fire. You're listening to The Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our journey to God. So this episode is an experiment I've always wanted to try. Even though I'm, of course, a man of faith, I'm going to list seven reasons why Christianity is eminently preferable, even simply as a worldview. While these reasons, of course, assumes that God is real, my aim is to suggest that the following seven reasons would still apply to practical life, even if you struggle to believe in God. And these seven reasons are 1. The unconditioned dignity of every person. 2. The pursuit of truth. 3. A belief that history is linear. 4. The defense of love and family. 5. The upholding of both individual and community. 6. Finding meaning in suffering and death. And 7. The Eternal Perspective on Life Hope these perk your interest in some way. And just a quick note, this episode is sort of like a free musing of mine and not intended to be like kind of heavy or academic. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you think and if you agree with my points or better yet, if you have any disagreements. Okay, so here we go. Reason 1. The Unconditioned Dignity of Every Person Why do all people automatically have equal dignity? Why does the all-famous American Constitution assert that it is self-evident that all men were created equal? Growing up in the West, it is just assumed that everyone automatically has rights and the freedom to exercise them. Yet we fail to recognize this has not been the case in many civilizations and religions around the world. Consider today how many minority groups are treated in non-Western regimes, say within China or Russia or India or in the theocracies of the Middle East. By minority groups, I mean people like the disabled, prisoners, ethnic groups, lower castes, the poor and women in general. See, the equal dignity of mankind is not a given 
and was actually founded upon biblical revelation that each person is made in the image of God and has that dignity. Before Christianity, the far more natural course of action is a sort of tribalism where the strong subjugates the weak. I mean, consider how even the mighty, shiny Roman Empire treated their conquered, let alone publicly butchering Christian and others opposed to its rule. Consider how even the great, sophisticated Aristotle considered the barbarians outside the Greek world as subhuman. Consider what rights women have today under the Taliban in Afghanistan and Boko Haram in Nigeria. Even the feature of religious tolerance is a particularly Western value because Christianity places such an esteemed place on individual conscience. And finally, it is because the West has historically prized human dignity so much that practices like abortion and euthanasia are such perversions of our foundations and also where you will always find Christians the most vocal. From womb to tomb, the dignity of even the most undignified are fought for because Genesis chapter 1 inspires it. Reason 2. The Pursuit of Truth The pursuit of truth, living by the truth, and the practice of honesty sounds like something everyone would agree to. But that's not always the case, especially today. Some of our contemporaries suggest things like, oh, there's no such thing as truth, or we live in a post-truth society, or there's only personal truth but no objective truth, etc., etc. With digital media, we now have an era filled with fake news, deep faked videos, and willfully biased journalism oftentimes infatuated with leaders who are notorious for not telling the truth and getting away with it. Surely the West is in a truth crisis. Ultimately, Christians believe truth is valuable because God is truth. All truth and all pursuit of truth participates in God. To deliberately live not in accordance to the truth is a direct perversion of our rational minds. Yet what makes the human soul unique from, say, animal souls is our rationality, the ability to reason, to reflect and to act with conscience. Our minds feed off truth and are nourished by it. It is for this reason that the universal access to education is a uniquely Christian contribution, and again something we take for granted here in the West. The very idea of universities began with the monastic schools of the Middle Ages, where monks passed on everything from maths to history to medicine and science. Truth is of God and should therefore be readily accessible to all. The Christian worldview suggests that truth cannot contradict truth and that there is a great harmonizing between, say, science and faith, medicine and meditation, psychology and spirituality, mathematics and mysticism. All truth can lead to God and God himself inspires our reason to pursue that which is true. Now, compare such a positive view of the mind with the overemphasis on feelings today, especially in the realm of sexuality and relationships. The narrative today is more like, if I feel like doing this and that today, I should do it, or if I feel like changing my this into a that, then that's okay too, and I must be in the right for my feelings are always right and must always be respected. In such a dangerous narrative, 
the rationality, the objective ability to reason and think things through, must fall away under the dictatorship of feeling. Yet Christianity maintains there is such thing as objective truth, even if our feelings are currently not aligned to it. To live not according to the truth, aka according to lies, would actually enslave us rather than set us free. Reason three: a belief that history is linear. Christians believe that history is going somewhere, that our time here on Earth is not mundane and cyclical and random, but that the world is heading towards a consummation in some way. This again sounds self-evident, but is not actually a given in other world religions and philosophies. Those who espouse views such as reincarnation, fatalism, nihilism, or even an indifference to the eventual nothingness of the universe engage with this lifetime very differently. Yet the notion that God has willed the world into existence, made the world for a purpose, and expects us to grow to actualize that purpose, actually fills our life with meaning. This principle applies not only individually but as a civilization too. In his famous book *Dominion: The Making of the Western Mind*, Tom Holland spells out how the West has grown in leaps and bounds, scientifically, psychologically, economically, precisely because of this belief in history's progress. This is not at all to say that Western culture hasn't also developed some pretty serious flaws, and it has. However, Holland argues that the fact that many parts of the world are now becoming Western, or wanting to become Western, is worth reflecting upon. Those who simply suggest, "Oh, the gradual Westernization of the world is purely a negative, greedy, corruptive force," are missing an entire side of the narrative. For example, my family's own place of origin, Hong Kong, is a good case study. While again not without its typical Western problems such as greed and manic productivity, Hong Kongers know that today they are far, far better off in terms of the lifting from poverty, human rights records, access to medicine, opportunity, and the freedom of speech than before the British takeover. And today, in the growing shadowy oppression of communist China, the contrast of values couldn't be greater. Christianity's century-long influence upon Hong Kong's value system has become eminently more attractive. Reason four: the defense of love and family. Family is not just a convenient social institution within Christianity. Genesis one and two reveals that family and marriage reflect the life-giving love of God. The fidelity of family and marriage reflects the fidelity of divine love, and its permanence. This is why Christians defend the family institution so much today, for the strength of the family unit also determines the strength of a nation. Saint John Paul II says, "So goes the family, so goes the nation, and the whole world in which we live." Today in the West, we face a family crisis. A marriage crisis, where even the very definition of the family is under attack by so-called progressives, who, with the same stroke, try and redefine the meaning of love. For Christians, love and marriage cannot just be redefined, for it is never just a feeling or a personal expression of affection, but something based on divine revelation, modeled after Christ's own example. Christian love. 
is the generous gift of one's very self for another. Rather than this being something that leaves us dry and empty, it is paradoxically life-giving and fruitful, literally. After all, Jesus' own total self-gift resulted in new life, abundant life that you and I share in today. Through his love, we are born into God's family as his sons and daughters. And this theology is profoundly captured in the everyday family unit. Christians see children as love's natural blessing and the full flourishing of a marriage. And in all the confusion today, one voice of clarity resounds, saying, Faith and reason promotes the traditional marriage as the optimal institution in which to raise children. This is not denying that other arrangements can exist where children can be raised. Rather, Christianity maintains that there is and always will be the optimal model of the family. Reason 5. The upbuilding of both the individual and the community. The health of any civilization always lies in the upbuilding of both the individual and the community, both the self and the state. It's not an either-or principle, but a both-and principle, and leaning towards either extreme has led to all sorts of horrors. For example, the absolutizing of the community over the individual is where the various communist regimes of the 20th century went disastrously wrong, for there the state was projected as the only good, and the individual existed only to serve the state. If any individual were no longer useful to the state or practiced something that could shift their loyalties, example religion, then you would soon be coerced into line, or simply vanish. When the community is idolized, the individual has no dignity, period. The other extreme, of course, is the absolutizing of the individual over the community. We see this phenomenon happening in the West today, as Christianity is sidelined more and more in the public square. Individual rights and choices are seen as the final absolute value, and anyone who holds a broader community value is immediately marked as discriminatory, a bigot, intolerant. The fact that minority groups can now dictate policies and consciences for entire organizations and nations is indicative of the individual trumping the community. It is of course good that many of the historically marginalized are now receiving equal opportunities and representation. However, it becomes inappropriate to demand that this must always happen in every instance, especially at the expense of the good of the wider community, or even at the expense of common sense. It is into this confusion that Christianity offers a unique paradox, that both the individual and the community have immeasurable dignity. God is both personal and universal, and his will affects both the individual and the whole world. The church's rich social teaching maintains that context is everything regarding the moral way forward that honors both individual and community. Reason 6. Finding meaning in suffering and death. Big one. It's often suggested that at the heart of world religion is the question of why there is suffering, especially why good people suffer. 
Suffering and death are probably the two things humanity are most terrified of. Strangely then, in the scriptures, we witness an all-powerful God who is especially present amidst every type of suffering imaginable. Evil, illness, broken families, broken dreams, exile, poverty, war, famine, and even death. Yet, suffering seems to be the Judeo-Christian God's preferred place of encounter. The implications of this today and for everyday living are manifold. We now know that no sin or effects of sin are beyond God's redemptive power or his presence. We know that Jesus has rendered suffering redeemable and that we can even share in that redemptive work when we today offer up our sufferings to God. But most importantly, we now know that the answer to the problem of suffering isn't a philosophy, but a person. We have as Christianity's central symbol the crucified Lord, a badge of honour which proclaims to the world, here is the epitome of unjust suffering, and we are no longer afraid. Why? Because God is with us. And as the metaphor goes, if you could choose to live on a tropical island without your one true love, or live in the slums with your one true love, which one would you choose? See, suffering takes on a whole new significance when we're with our beloved, our God who suffers with us. Reason 7. The Eternal Perspective The promise of heaven and eternity sets us free to live this life well. The thought of heaven is often accused of being escapist and the opium of the masses, you know, for those who wish to escape from the darkness of this world. In defence, Peter Kreeft argues, and I agree with him, that it is those who are most fixed upon eternity that are able to live this life to the fullest, as testified by not only the lives of the saints but also of Jesus himself. How? Well, if this life is all there is, then it makes sense to seize it by the throat and get as much out of it as possible. Pleasure, new experiences, fame, glory, wealth. Looking at the way many of our contemporaries live, it, is, it seems as though this life is all there is. Enter again the catch cries of FOMO, which means the fear of missing out, and YOLO, you only live once. Such acronyms suggest a certain urgency to get as much as you can out of life now while you still have it. However, if we believe that our ultimate destination and fulfillment is with God, then suddenly we can be quite indifferent to even the good things in this life that are not God. Wealth, family, health, success are all good things, but we needn't absolutize them because only God is, in the end, absolute. Holding these good things lightly, we are able to live a life of self-gift, where our lives are poured out for others in love and service. See, Christianity doesn't inspire its believers to live a life of love because they want to get to heaven. But rather, the promise of heaven sets us free to live a life of love. This is surely an exemplary way to orient one's life. And from my humble little opinion, I can't see a worldview as powerful and transformative as this. Echoing the words of St. Therese of Lisieux, The world is thy ship and not thy home. Okay, in conclusion, 
There's my seven reasons why Christianity as a worldview is simply epic and unique among any other way of being. If you somehow rediscovered Christianity as attractive and compelling as a worldview, it is my joy to remind you that I've nevertheless omitted the actual heart of Christianity, an intimate relationship with Jesus and the deep satisfaction of fulfilling His will for your life. Ultimately, it is God that we were made for, and it is God who is the origin and purpose of human civilization and history. There are, of course, many aspects of our exploration that I've omitted today because of time. Things such as how Christianity gave birth to the scientific method, how it answers the question of whether life has meaning, how it inspires authentic beauty, and also how it brings the gift of mercy into the world. But hopefully, today was informative and inspiring enough as it is. So, how do you think I went? I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedbacks on this topic. For the practical program exercise, I'm actually just going to encourage you to pray about one person you can share this episode with,、uh, because this episode, in many ways, is designed to be a pre-evangelization tool、uh, before the gospel to clear away some roadblocks people have to the faith, but more important, to represent how beautiful, compelling, and truthful Christianity is for our civilization, yes, but also for us as individuals. So definitely, I would encourage you to share this episode with one other person. And also, if you haven't already, please rate this podcast too, especially if you're using apps like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. For the more stars the show gets, the more likely it is people will find it. <laughs> Thanks in advance and for your support always. Till next time, journey forth. Take care and God bless. <laughs>